so glad you're here. Uh, this is the seventh week of our summer and early fall series as we're going through the book of Acts. So thanks for being here in the building here in Whatcom County, those of you in Skagit Valley, as well as those in Belize, those who are attending online. So glad that you're with us this weekend in this series on the book of Acts, but we're entitled it Unleashed, Unhindered, and Unstoppable, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, the history of the church, and his story of the church that continues on. And what we're going to look at today, the event that we're going to examine out of Acts chapter 9, would actually add a fourth un to this list of uns. Unleashed, yes. Unhindered, yes. Unstoppable, yes. But this one, maybe they would say unbelievable, and I don't use that word figuratively. What we're going to look at, there were many of the, the followers of Jesus that thought what was going to happen was un, unable to happen. They, they didn't believe it. They were skeptical. And when it did happen, they still weren't believing that it actually happened. And to say that it was a big event in the events of the church is a massive understatement. In fact, the ripple effects of this event would not only impact all of Israel, it would spread throughout the Roman Empire into the kingdom of God throughout human history. And I would dare say that 2,000 years later, the reason and the fact that we as followers of Jesus are gathering and meeting today is, is possible partly due to this event that we're going to look at today. It is so big that um, Warren Wearsby, who's a, a biblical commentator, he said this, perhaps this event, perhaps this is the greatest event in the church history after the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, he said this, no single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinant for the course of Christian history. This thing that we're looking at, these guys would say, yes, Nothing tops the fact that Jesus came, he lived, he was crucified, he died, buried, and rose from the dead, the resurrection, that's what it's all based on. And then with Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But third in line would be this event. Something so dramatic, and many, as I said, were very skeptical and doubtful that it had actually even happened. And it can be summarized best when in the, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul kind of recounts it, and it, it says this in Galatians. They only heard the report. Here it is. This summarizes what we're going to look at today. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And what we're going to look at is the conversion and the commissioning of Saul of Tarsus when he is better known now as the Apostle Paul. How that would happen. What would it take for a terrorist to become an evangelist. And that's the story we're going to look at. And it is of such magnitude that in the book of Acts, Luke actually records this story three different times. Acts chapter 9, and this happened probably three to five years after Jesus had ascended to the Father. Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at this story. We'll get there eventually if you want to turn to Acts chapter 9. But it's also recorded later in Acts 22, which would have happened 22 years later. When Paul is in Jerusalem and there's a massive riot that's taking place, they're trying to kill him, and Paul is at the epicenter of this riot, and he says, can I talk to the people? Can I address the crowd? And he quiets them down, and he begins to speak to them, and he tells the story again. And then two or three years later, he's, he's imprisoned in a place called Caesarea Maritima. It's, it's this, this, this city right by the, the Mediterranean Sea. And he's going to be sent to Rome, and he's there for a couple of years. And in fact, it's a place where a guy named Cornelius uh, is stationed 
Come back next week for that story. Unbelievable story is there as well. But he's in Caesarea Maritima, and he's brought before Festus and King Agrippa and King Agrippa's wife, Bernice, and he tells this story again. And each time he tells the story, you get other little details that he leaves out that are pertinent to different situations. So as I said, we're going to spend the majority of our time in Acts chapter 9. I am going to touch down in Acts 22 a little bit and 26 just to get some of the details that aren't recorded in Acts chapter 9. This story is so impactful to, to Saul slash Paul that he tells it again when he writes to the church, the churches in Galatia, in that letter to the Galatians, and in the, the letter to the Corinthians, he alludes to it again, and he kind of gives a nod to it again in his letter to Timothy. So it comes up over and over again. But let's back up a little bit. You've got Saul of Tarsus, who is a terrorist, but he's a very devout religious terrorist. He is a devout Jew. He's a follower of Yahweh. He is committed to the Torah, the, the, the Old Testament. And he is, he is so devoted to these things. In fact, when he starts talking about his own personal credentials, of his own upbringing, of his own uh, spiritual nature, when he's talking about this in uh, Philippians, he says this. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. What he's saying is, listen, if you could do this on your own, like no one was better than me. And then he goes into these. Now, us not being from the Jewish background, we don't understand how much of this would just give uh, credibility to him. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was like, okay, but that was a big deal for them. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Saul's dad was a Pharisee. Saul was a Pharisee. He comes from this long line of, of Hebrews, of, of people who followed after God. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. He said, I memorized the law. I followed the law. I was a Pharisee. I knew the law. I lived it. I did this. And when he's telling this story in Acts 22, and he's trying to explain to these people that are rioting and trying to kill him, he says, listen, I'm one of you. And again, he begins to tell about his own credentials in Acts 22, when he says, I'm a, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. All right, that would be in what we would refer today as, as Turkey and kind of uh, Southeast Turkey. But I was brought up in this city. So he was born in Turkey area, but he's somehow brought up in Jerusalem. Now, whether this was his parents who were devout Jews saying, we're sending him off to boarding school, we're sending him to where he can get his best education, the best uh, scholarly training under the Torah, we're gonna send him to Jerusalem, or if they just said, you know, his dad's a Pharisee, we just wanna be at the epicenter of all things, we're gonna move to Jerusalem, and we want our son to be raised in Jerusalem, we want him to have the best schooling. I mean, think about this, if you're a, ma a magician, if you are a musician, <laughs> bit of a difference. If you are a musician and you wanted your daughter to get into the music industry, you might move to Nashville because she has a better chance of it there. She'll be around the best musicians. If you're a, an actress and you want your son to be an actor, you move to Hollywood because there would be the more chances for that. If, if you're a nuclear physicist and you wanted your child to follow suit, you moved to Alger or something. I don't know. But they moved somehow to Jerusalem. Somehow he's brought up in Jerusalem. Not only that, he said, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. Now, you've got to understand Gamaliel. He's like the Yoda of the Pharisees, of the rabbis. 
I mean, he's got people, he, he is a voice of authority in the Sanhedrin. We skipped over a lot in chapter five of Acts. Gamaliel has this voice in the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Judaism. In addition to that, his grandfather was a guy named Hillel, which if you know Jewish history, there were two main schools of thought of, of Hillel and Shammai. His grandfather was Hillel, and Hillel was very instrumental in bringing about the, uh, the Talmud and the Mishnah. So he's got all kinds of credentials. He says, Gamaliel, he was my tutor. I was raised under him, and I was thoroughly trained in the law. And just as zealous for God as any of you are today. He said, I know. The reason you want to kill me is because you want to protect the purity of our faith and your people of the law. He said, I am too. I I'm just, I was as zealous as you. So much so, in fact, he says that I persecuted, I persecuted the followers of this way. Now, a little, little pause here. Christians were not called Christians right away. That happened later. We may cover that in two or three weeks. It started in Antioch. At this point, they're Jewish followers of Jesus, and they get this nickname, The Way. It may have come out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where it says, prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist would use that. I'm here to prepare the way for the Lord. But in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And they're referred to as the way. They're these Jewish followers of Jesus, the way. And he says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Like I killed them, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. He says, listen, I was so zealous for the things of God, for the things of Judaism, for the things of our people, for the, for the Torah that I persecuted him. And we see this, Saul has this holy war that he's going on. And, and we're not just talking about he slandered them or he kind of gave them a bad time or he harassed them or he made things difficult for them. He had them put to death. He had them killed. Brutal treatment. Inhumane treatment. Fatal treatment. Horrible treatment. Deplorable treatment of these followers of Jesus. And as horrible as it was, I will say this about Saul. As repugnant as his actions were, in his ignorance, and he would say that in, Tim, in his letter to Timothy, in my ignorance and unbelief, his motives were pure. He wanted to honor God. He wanted to follow the Torah. He wanted to keep Judaism pure. He wanted to eradicate anything that would be a threat or, or that would be a falsehood, as he saw it, towards what God had said and done and called them to. And you wonder, how did he get so angry towards these followers of Jesus? Give me some grace as I speculate a bit. He was raised, born in Cilicia, but he was raised in Jerusalem, a little bit younger than Jesus. Now, it's highly unlikely, but there's an outside chance. So you're saying there is a chance. There's an outside chance that as a child, when Jesus was 12 and he was at the temple and he was talking to the religious leaders, okay, this one's a real stretch. I, if you asked me, did it really happen? I'd say, yeah, no, no, that's just Bob thinking that. This probably didn't happen. But outside possibility that a young Saul maybe was at the temple and saw this 
young 12-year-old boy named Jesus interacting. And maybe, it's a stretch, maybe. That was the first connection there. It's possible. Now you get a little bit more of a chance here with this. He was a Pharisee. It's possible that there were times when the Pharisees would come after Jesus, try to corner Jesus. It's possible that that's the Saul, this, this one under Gamaliel, this, this upstart, this, this bright and shining young up-and-coming Pharisee could have been a part of that crowd. That, that time when the woman was caught in the very act of adultery, and, and Jesus says, he who is without stone, he is who without sin cast the first stone, and then he begins to write in the sand, and it says that the religious leaders, the, the, the Pharisees, they began to leave with the oldest first, and it's possible that Saul would have been there and as a young man may have been one of the last to leave and inside of him there's this anger that this man is not following the law of Moses. It's very plausible that when there was a crowd screaming that Jesus should be crucified in Jerusalem with the religious leaders, very plausible that a young Saul was right there in the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, rid this earth of this man who's, who's claiming to be the Messiah, this blasphemer. And it is very probable on the day of Pentecost, when Peter gets up to speak, that Saul would have been at the temple on that day, heard that speech, and saw what was happening, and was one of the ones who was ridiculing them, saying, these people are drunk. And all the way through that, it is possible that all the way through that, there's this crescendo of rage and anger and hatred towards this one who's Jesus, towards his followers who said that he's the Messiah, towards the ones who say he's, yes, he was crucified, but he's alive again. And it just brings within him this, this rage and this anger. And so he gets this personal vendetta to go after this. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 26, he would say this. He said, I too was convinced core of my being, I believe this was right. I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I thought I was doing God a favor. I thought I was doing God's will. Out of my own ignorance, I believed this. I thought this is what God wanted. Now, if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Brian preached a great sermon on on Stephen. Stephen was a, a deacon in the early church, a godly man filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and he, was, he was killed because of it. They, they stoned him. If you weren't here last week, go online, listen or watch uh, Pastor Brian's sermon on, on Stephen. But when this happens, as they drag him out of the city and they begin to throw rocks at him and kill him, this is where we first find a mention of Saul. In Acts chapter 7, it says, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They're killing Stephen. They're taking off their outer garments. They're laying him down. And Saul is just kind of observing all this. Not only is he observing it, but it says, next slide. It says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Like, there's not even a check in his spirit. Not, nothing saying, we shouldn't be doing this. He's giving approval. This is like a... a, a, a Religious mob, a religious mafia, they're, they're whacking this guy. They're, they're offing him. They're, they're snuffing him out, and he's like, this is a good thing. He's given approval to a killing, and on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
So what happens with Stephen, as Stephen is killed, suddenly it's like it lights this powder keg, and now there's just this mob mentality. They are taking out the followers of Jesus, those who are part of the way throughout, and people begin to flee. They begin to scatter. They begin to leave Jerusalem. But this isn't altogether bad. Because if you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The only problem is they never left Jerusalem. They stayed in Jerusalem. But now with this persecution, they go. And where do they go? Judea and Samaria, where Jesus said that they would go in the first place. And it goes on, it says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. He just goes after this. He wants to destroy the church. But what is amazing is in his effort to destroy the church, the very thing he does is he accelerates the expansion of the church. By the persecution, now people are going. A, a couple hundred years later, an early church father named Tertullian said this, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. What that means is because of the persecution, they went, and when they went, they took their faith in Jesus with them. It's like this. Let me put it in our kind of terms. It's like if you had a dandelion in your backyard, and you said, I've got to get rid of this dandelion, and you went, took care of that. Oh, no, you didn't. You just, you just exponentially increased your problem of dandelions in the backyard. You've just put seeds everywhere. When they torture these Christians, they go and the seeds of the gospel go throughout Judea and Samaria. This shows the omnipotence of God. This shows the sovereignty of God, that he can take things that are negative and turn them around for his purposes and for good. Isn't that what, what Joseph said in Genesis 50? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Can't God take something, the worst thing in the world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and turn it around for the redemption of the world? Isn't that what Paul said, that God causes all things to work together good? Let me just tell you, in your life, the worst thing you face, God can turn it around for his glory and your good and his purposes. That's what he does. These Christians have been killed and they're spread out, and God says, I'll use that for my purpose and for my glory, and they go, and they spread, and they take with them the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. But Paul has this, this personal vendetta against them. Acts 26, it says, on the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another. Remember, they're still Jewish. They still go to the synagogues. They're followers of Jesus. They just recognize that everything the Old Testament was pointing to was fulfilled in Jesus. But he knows, I know where they're going to be. They're at the synagogue. So he goes to them. I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme, to, to give some reason to, to arrest them, to accuse them, to put them to death even. And he just continues on with this. And there's this, this obsession. He, he says this. Um, next slide, please. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. See, he's not satisfied just to have them leave Jerusalem. He says, I don't want them just gone from Jerusalem. 
I want them eradicated from the face of the planet. When I read this, the, the thought that comes to my mind is how I feel about moles in my yard. I hate moles in my yard. And I will do anything to get rid of them. And I've gone to every store and tried every kind of thing. And I've had some people say, well, just spray this on your yard and they will leave your yard. I don't want them to just leave my yard. I don't want them to just go into the field, into the woods, into the neighbor's yard. I want them gone. I will chase them through the briars, through the brambles, through the woods, through the fields, through the neighbor's yards, high and low. I will chase them down until they're gone. Thanks, that was very therapeutic for me. And that's how Saul's approaching these Christians. I don't want just them having been out of Jerusalem. I'm going to chase them wherever they go until they're gone. And he's just driven by this. And so he says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus. Damascus is about 140 miles north of Jerusalem. It's not in Israel. It's in today what we would call Lebanon. Then it was called Syria. About six days journey. He says, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And that's where we start our story today. The intro to the sermon is over. <laughs> now we start the sermon. So if you're open to Acts chapter 9, this is where we're going to pick up. In Acts chapter 9. Because he's chasing after these followers of Jesus, and he hears that some of them have been scattered up north, and he goes up to Damascus. Acts chapter 9. Verse 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, here it is again, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he is going outside of Israel. He doesn't have jurisdiction outside of Israel, but in the synagogue he does. So if he's got letters from Jerusalem from the chief priests, from, from the leaders there, to go into the synagogues, and these people are followers after Jesus, he can arrest them, extradite them, put them on trial, and hopefully have them put to death. That's his whole entire plan and intent, is that he's going to go and do that. And on his way up there, it's a six-day journey. He's going with the entourage of people to, to arrest all these followers of Jesus. Six-day journey. He's going. And in um, Acts 22, he says it was about noon, probably on the sixth day. It's been a long journey, but he's almost there. About noon. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. I mean, it was, it was, it was bright, and it, not only him, but the others saw it as well. This, this light, this blind light. Again, Acts 26, he said, it was brighter than the sun. It's so bright, in fact, that it kind of knocked him off his feet. It says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. And this is very important. Because it wasn't just a random event. It wasn't just a solar flare. It wasn't just a, a, an arbitrary group of people. It was one individual. He is known and he is called by name. Others saw the light. Others heard the sound. But it was the name Saul. Chosen. Hand-selected. Picked. Saul. Saul. There's something very, very special about having this salutation twice. Saul, Saul. There's only a few times in the Bible where someone's name is addressed twice. 
And every time, it's a very significant moment. It's meant to underline, exclamation point, bold, italics. It's meant to say, you've got to listen. I've got to get your attention. This is so important. When Abraham was getting ready to kill Isaac, and the voice of the Lord came to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, twice. Stop, Abraham, Abraham. When Jacob is getting ready to go to Egypt, and he's not sure about it, the Lord appears to him and says, Jacob, Jacob, twice. When Moses is at the burning bush. He hears his name, Moses, Moses. It's being called to a new level to take God's people out of bondage. And Samuel's a little boy. He hears his name, Samuel, Samuel. He's going to become the very voice of God to the entire nation. It only happens four times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the time where Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you worry about so many things. He's calling her to a deeper level of devotion, to a reprioritizing of her life. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, and when you return, he's calling him to a new level. And Jesus, with tears in his eyes, looks over and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. And who can ever forget on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now, he says, Saul, Saul. This is a pivotal moment, not only in Saul's life, but in the history, in his story of the church. Saul, Saul, he says, why do you persecute me? Who, who, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice he doesn't say, why are you persecuting them? Why are you persecuting the followers of the way? Why are you persecuting the church? He doesn't even say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He repeats it. You're persecuting me. And what we need to be very clear is that Jesus identifies with his church. Sometimes I wonder why, and I'm speaking to me, why Jesus tolerates his church. Sometimes I wonder why Jesus associates with his church. We're so human and so frail and fallen and sinful. Why? But Jesus doesn't just tolerate his church. He doesn't just associate with his church. He identifies with his church. He loves his church. The church, his followers that were redeemed by the spilled precious blood out of his veins. The church that has been filled with his spirit. The church has been called to his mission and, and called to, to transform the world. The church, his bride whom he loves. And he says, listen, you mess with your bride, my bride, you mess with me. The bride that is not perfect, but he sees her as beautiful. And he washes her and she's blemished, unblemished and she is pure without wrinkle. In Ephesians chapter 5, the, the passage on the husbands and wives, at the end of that passage, he, Paul quotes this, this verse from Genesis for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And following that, he says, I speak about a mystery. I'm speaking about Christ and the church. That the oneness 
of a husband and wife, the oneness of this unity, this commitment. Jesus says, that's how I am. You mess with my bride, you mess with me. And my people, my church, it's my holy dwelling. The veil's been ripped. God no longer dwells in temples made by men. We are the temple of the living God. We are the holy of holies. We are the holy dwelling place, the sacred ground where God dwells right within his people. We are the body of Christ. In Colossians 1, it says he is the head of the body. Ephesians is again, head of the body. Listen, you start destroying my leg, my head's gonna have something to say about it. And Jesus comes and says, why are you persecuting me? And I think that's stuck in his mind, Saul's mind. Because years later, he would write to the church in Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't you know that you yourselves, plural, are God's temple? You say, well, isn't, yeah, yeah, I know, my body is the temple of God. No, 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 no. That's in 1 Corinthians 6. This is 1 Corinthians 3 in the context he's talking about the gathering of God's people, the redeemed ones, the saints, his followers, his church. He says, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let me just say this. You try to destroy the church. You know, and, and this whole thing that people say, well, I don't really like the church, but I'm all about Jesus. And Jesus wouldn't say that. Jesus said, I am one with my church, with my bride. It's my temple where I dwell. That's my body. You destroy the church, it's an affront, an attack on the Son of God. Why do you persecute me? Well, back to our story, that light not only, not only knocks him down, but it blinds him. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. For three days, and you can read the details that I passed over. Three days he's sitting there, he's praying, he's asking, he's fasting. Interesting how God does things in three days. Three days, Jonah was in the dark belly of a big fish. Three days. Jesus was in the dark belly of the earth of the grave. Three days, Saul is in darkness, blinded by the light. And this is why I've entitled this sermon, Blind Illumination. Because he lost his eyesight, but he gained soul vision. There was something that happens. Up to this point, he's been able to physically see, but spiritually he's been blind. Now, physically, he can't see, but spiritually, he's beginning to see again. That, that's, why, um, that's why I asked Ron, can, can we sing that I saw the light deal? Because it fits so well with this, this sermon. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. Helen Keller was once asked, is there anything worse than being blind? She said, having sight but no vision. Up to this point, Paul had physical sight, but he didn't have the spiritual vision. Now God is beginning to reverse that. He's beginning to change that. And I wonder if this was not just so profound in the moment, but that it never left him. One little rabbit trail, if you'll grant me. And if you won't, I'm going there anyway. 
that years later he would write these words and think about it through what he's just experienced in 2 Corinthians, where it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you think maybe, just maybe, he's thinking to an experience he had on the road to Damascus years earlier? That his mind had been blinded, but then he got to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, he would write to the church in Ephesus, and he would say, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know the hope to which you've been called, the inheritance of the saints, that you would be able to see things for what they are, be able to see clearly who God has called you to be, what we are called to be. So meanwhile, in Damascus, there's a guy named Ananias. Not Ananias and Sapphira from chapter five, which we skipped over, another story that which we had time for. This is another guy named Ananias. We don't know a lot about him. What we know is that he lives in Damascus. He's not from Jerusalem. He didn't get scattered during the persecution. He's from Damascus. He is Jewish. He's a follower after Jesus, and high, high likelihood, great probability, that he had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, that he had heard Peter's sermon, that he had been filled with the Spirit. He goes back home to Damascus. He continues to live as a Jewish follower of Jesus, now filled with the Holy Spirit. And one day as he's praying, the voice of the Lord calls him by name, Ananias. And he has a message for him. He says this, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Very specific instructions. This is before GPS. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias, a.k.a. you, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now you think, okay, easy enough. I know where Straight Street is. Might even know who Judas is. I'll go down there, lay my hands on him, and we'll go with this. Yeah, you know, probably not. See, Ananias... A spirit-filled Jesus follower of the way, Jewish, going to synagogues, had probably had brothers and sisters who fled Jerusalem and told him stories. In fact, he may have been housing some of these spiritual refugees in his own home. And he had heard the stories of how they had been persecuted. He had sat and listened to a man with red bloodshot eyes filled with tears tell about how his wife had been killed because she was a follower of Jesus. He listened to grandparents hear about how their grandchildren had been arrested and taken from them and they don't even know if they're dead or alive. He'd heard the stories of the inhumane treatment, how they would come right into the synagogue. They would come there to worship and they would be arrested and they would be brutally treated. And, and some of them, they, they would never go back to their homes. They had lost their loved ones. They, they could never return. He had heard these stories over and over again. He had felt their pain. He had lived with their pain. And they said, it's all because of this one guy named Saul from Tarsus. And now God says this. Now Ananias doesn't say, no, Lord. But he does what some of us do in our prayers. We just want to make sure God knows the details. I don't know if you've ever prayed that way, or I said, God, do you know what's going on? Let me tell you what. Like, this is all, God does, I was not aware of that. 
Ananias prays. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name, which includes me. And God just listens, patiently listens, doesn't argue. And God gives Ananias, he's the first one. Ananias gets a glimpse of what God is going to do through this man's soul. And he says this. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument. Hand selected. Very specific. Not just a random guy out of the crowd. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. I'm going to open this up. And their kings and before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You don't worry about that. Ananias, what I'm going to do through this man is going to change the world. It's not going to be just for Israel. It's not going to be just for Jewish people. It's going to be for Gentiles. And he's even going to stand before kings. Again, chapter 26, King Agrippa, when he goes to, to Rome, he's going to be before the greatest leaders in the Roman Empire. And as far as what he's going to have to suffer, yeah, he's been the persecutor. He's going to be persecuted. I'll let you know that for sure. He's been the hunter. He will be hunted. He's been the arrester. He will be arrested. He's been the murderer. He will be murdered for my sake. But I'm going to do something through him. So Ananias goes, can you imagine what Ananias is feeling when he goes. Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, can you imagine what he does? And, and I can picture if I was there, and there, there there's, there's, there's Saul, and he's blind, and, and I'm Ananias, and, and I come and I, and, I, and I place my hands on his shoulders, and everything inside me wants to go like this. But I know, and, uh, no. And he says, and I think of all the things I'd like to say, Saul, you think you're so religious? Have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Do you not know one of them says, thou shalt not kill? Do you know what you've been doing? Have you any idea of the pain? Do you know the people that sat in my living room with tears in their eyes? They'll never see their family. Do you? It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't strangle him. These two beautiful words, brother Saul. Brother, he's enemy number one, and he's, what? Brother's got a hug. What, what are you talking about, brother Saul? This guy's been killing our people. How could this enemy now be referred to as brother? There's only one way. The Lord Jesus, that's the only way. The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just like the blind man that God gave back his sight, praise the Lord, I saw the light. And as he prays for him and lays his hands on him, something like scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the unthinkable happens. 
Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues. He was going to the synagogues. He was going there not to preach. He was going there to arrest people. He was going there to arrest people who followed the name of Jesus, the one that he was, felt confident he was supposed to oppose. He goes in the synagogues preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Wait, what? All those who heard him were astonished. You think? And when asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And here's Saul, who has been schooled under Gamaliel, who knows the Torah. And all of a sudden, he begins to connect the dots. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit begins to help him tie up all the loose ends. And he begins to understand all the things he knows about the Old Testament are all fulfilled in Jesus. And it says he becomes more powerful, and he begins to speak more convincingly. And it's just unbelievable as this guy begins to talk about Jesus being the Son of God. And then he goes off to Arabia for three years. But I want to circle back to Ananias. Ananias, this faithful follower of Jesus, Holy Spirit, continued to walk in obedience. We had never heard of him before, and we never hear of him again. He's a faithful servant of Jesus, and Jesus calls him to do a very specific task. It's the only thing we know about him. And then he's gone, and we just say, who was that masked man? Thank you. One person got it. Ananias faithfully served Jesus, and when Jesus says, I've got a job for you, he does that. And what's amazing is he is the first friend that Saul has in the church. He's the first one who refers to him as brother. Three years in Arabia, Saul comes back to Damascus. They're going to try to kill him. They let him down. He escapes to Jerusalem. We read this. When he come, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. This is three years later, but they remember, you killed my mom. Of course they're afraid. But Barnabas, oh, I love Barnabas. So love Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And we'll see in a few weeks that Barnabas and Paul go on to do some incredible things together. But look at these two guys. Paul's gonna change the world, but God uses Ananias and Barnabas. One to welcome him, one to vouch for him. And these two guys are kinda of in the kingdom scorebook. They get assists, like they're helping. Paul, he gets the MVP award, but these guys, if it weren't for these two, and, and I think about us in the kingdom of God. I think about us in the church. Because there were a lot of people who were still opposed to Paul, still didn't believe, still weren't sure. Like, let's, let's, let's wait this thing out. How about us in the kingdom of God? Are we greeters or bouncers? Do we welcome people in? Or do we say, yeah, we're not really sure if you're allowed in yet. We're going to put you on probation. We're just going to keep an eye on you for a while. Or do we welcome them in? See, Ananias and Barnabas said, listen, I know it's unbelievable, but this guy's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been changed by the grace of God, and he's one of us, brother, brother Saul. And it changed Saul. And he would write this in 1 Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Okay, well, well wait a second. In Philippians, he's saying, there's no one better than me. If anyone could brag, you know, no one better than me. Now I'm the worst of all sinners. 
you kind of just want to give them some pro, Prozac, take off the highs and lows, just like, whoa, easy, you know, y'all. Here's the truth. With Jesus and his grace, no one is too good and no one is too bad. There is not one of us, there is no one that is so good that they don't need the grace of Jesus. I don't care how religious you are, I don't care how well you know the Bible, I don't care how much you follow the rules, you will never be good enough to not need Jesus. And there is no one so bad to be outside of the reach of Jesus. I don't care what you've done, I don't care about your past, there is no one so bad that can't be reached by the grace of Jesus. When he writes to the church in Corinth, and they had all kinds of baggage, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, but because I persecuted the church of God. Listen, if you're asleep, if your neighbor's asleep, wake them up. I want them to at least get this out of the sermon. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. This became Paul's message. I did all this in the flesh. I was religious. I was a Pharisee. All, I was all garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I gave up all things. I'd rather have righteousness in him than my own righteousness that comes from the law. It's the grace of God, and it has impacted me. It's had effect on me. Who's the Saul in your life? Who is that person right now you're thinking, they would never become a follower of Jesus? Never say never. What if we began to pray, God, would you continue to reach to them, to woo them, to orchestrate circumstances that would fix their eyes on you, to bring them to you like you did with Saul? Again, that verse out of 1 Timothy and the following one, trustworthy saying, Christ came into the world to save sinners whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, Paul says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That's us. What God did for Saul, Saul said he did this in me. If he could do this with me, he can do it with you. And if he can do it with us, he can do this in anybody's life. I pray that we would never give up on anybody. We would continue to pray, continue to love, continue to invest, to continue to believe that God will do anything to reach anyone and everyone. And that we would be like Ananias and Barnabas. Brother, sister, welcome to the family of grace. What a story. The history of, this, of the church is his story of the church.